When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you 2 The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, the Cramps, U2, etc, etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Today's podcast, I'm delighted to say, is with Adam Clayton and The Edge from U2. It's an interview I conducted in November 1984, as the band were passing through playing two nights in my hometown of Manchester, England. Uh, the interview went out as a New Year's Eve special. And here you hear Adam and The Edge, just prior to world domination, talking about the recording of The Unforgettable Fire and future plans. Meanwhile, I just wanted to recap a little on um, Moments That Rock and what we've had from U2. U2 was uh, really the band of the 80s. They got signed in March 1980 by Island Records at uh, the Lyceum in Dublin, in the ladies' toilet, in fact. And uh, There's a possibility we could have an interview coming up in uh, a few weeks' time of the guy who actually signed the band to Island Records. We put out um, uh, the first of the four U2 programmes, podcasts, was with Neil Storey, who was press officer at Island at the time, telling us how he took a journalist out to see them and uh, took him to a gig where they played to nine people. I also took him to a gig, which was a different one, where they played to nine people. <laughs> But uh, they've uh, grown a little larger since then. Uh, Boy was released in October 1980. That was recorded at Windmill Lane Studios in Dublin in July 1980. October was released in October 81. And um, they actually didn't finish touring the Boy album until February 81. Then were in the studio in July with a release in October. They worked so hard, played everywhere. The third album, War, was uh, released in um, 1982. Uh, February the 28th to be in fact and uh, what you might not know is that was the album that knocked Thriller by Michael Jackson off the top of the charts um, as a number one album in the UK and uh, number 12 in the US well, of course it had Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day uh, we have an amazing interview with uh, Malcolm Gary who put together the Red Rocks um, event which is uh, legendary one of the finest live music concerts ever that's um, for you to delve back into the Moments That Rock archives to dig out and listen to. And we also have Dave Robinson, who is the managing director, stroke president of Island Records around the Unforgettable Fire, put together a lot of the uh, marketing campaign with, of course, Ray Cooper, uh, the guy who gave me my first job in the music industry. Sadly, Ray has passed. Um, so really, we have four programmes with uh, you two and um, this is the fourth and there might be a few little nuggets because I found an interview that um, 
kind of interview that I did with The Edge. He phoned me up to wish me happy anniversary of my first radio show back in uh, 1985, the first anniversary. And uh, some interesting stuff on that. So we might dig that out and play in weeks to come. But it's not you two overkill. It's just uh, some incredible stuff from an amazing time over that period, of course, which um, really culminated in the release of the Joshua Tree and world domination. And it's hard to believe that uh, the end of May, May the 31st, will be 41 years since me and Mark Radcliffe went along to see the band play live, third on the bill at the Manchester Manchester Polytechnic. Which reminds me, I forgot to mention, that programme two of U2 is Mark Radcliffe talking about that very same day and what it meant to him, and also a rare, rare interview with Bono and The Edge just before the release of War. So that wraps up the blabbering bit from me. And uh, by the way, if this dips in and out a little bit volume-wise, you've got to remember these were originally on uh, reel-to-reel that I copied onto cassette, and then I copied the cassettes onto MP3. So don't expect digital where digital doesn't exist. A very special guest today, Adam Clayton, bass player and the Edge guitarist with a, a band you might have heard called U2. Welcome to the programme, fellas. Hi, Tony. Oh, hello, Tony. Nice to see you again. Uh, well, I, for one, have had an excellent weekend and thoroughly enjoyed U2 arriving in Manchester. Would it be true to say this is probably the last time the Manchester Apollo is going to see U2? Well, I wouldn't want to uh, start any vicious rumours, but... Um at this point, it's difficult to say whether we would come back and do another Apollo. Um, certainly not on, on this particular world tour. With the way the bands progress and everything, and here we are sort of five years on from the time I saw you play the Polytechnic, for instance, and, and I was there in that room that Bonner refers to where there were nine people there. I was proud to say I was one of them. Um, would be a bit of an understatement to say you've come a long way since then, but I mean... It is actually a change to you too now, isn't it, Edge, with the fact that everything is reliant on the total production and the sheer quality of, of the stage show that you're putting together. It's not relying so much on, on Bono climbing PA stacks nowadays, etc., is it? Yeah, there's a certain finesse that we've uh, developed over the last 12 months, and um, some would say it's it's long overdue. You know, we've we've survived for long enough, I think, on on just vibe, you know, I always remember watching Wah Heat in their early days and it seemed to me that they would um, construct situations like breakdowns of amplifiers and PAs just so Wiley could get on the microphone and, and abuse the audience and rap with the crowd for a, for a few minutes. And that was great, you know, that works fantastically in a club or a small theatre. But when you start playing large places and um, your, your, uh, your show must project to the very back of the hall, then I think you've got to take it a bit more seriously and be a bit more, quote, professional about the whole thing. And um, we've become aware of this first in the States where we started doing larger venues about 12 months ago. And with this record, things have just started really coming together and uh, developing to in a direction that we, up till now, really haven't really considered. You've, like we say, you've attracted a, a massive following and you seem to have, uh, st- a lot of the fans that were with you in the early days have stuck with you and, and uh, there's a huge amount of people that have got into you 2 I think, since the unforgettable fire. How did, uh, briefly, Adam, how did it all work out with Eno? Was it a huge success? Musically, uh, uh, it was 
certainly an interesting development and at the time it was exactly the, the right direction for the band to go. Um, so I think in answer to that question, yes. In terms of, of how people see the records, I, I can't really comment because I haven't really had a chance to talk to to any of the, of the um, audience who come to the shows to sort of see what what they get out of it because I'm probably too close to it. But I, I think it was definitely a good move to make. It's important to stress, I think, the fact that you knew exactly what you wanted when you approached Dino, wasn't it, in the first place, Edge? Yeah, that that's true. For the first time, um, we actually had some of the songs already written, and that, in a way, was one of the, the, the things that affected our choice of producer. Had the song been more uh, American or something, we may have gone with someone else. But it seemed to us at the time that they really had a, had a very overt European perspective, and we wanted somebody, some producer that could enhance that. And Eno just seemed like a perfect choice. As it turned out, he was more perfect even than we envisaged originally. Of course, everybody and everyone seems to be wanting Brian Eno to produce them now. Was it a difficult uh, decision for him to make, or did he take to you straight away? I think Brian is the kind of person who, who makes decisions very much on impulse. I mean, he'll spend a lot of time worrying about it and thinking about it, but when it actually comes down to the decision, he has no difficulty making it. And, well, I mean, it's, it's not really my place to say whether... Um, he made the decision easily, but I, I think when he spoke to the band, because he basically wasn't interested in rock music, but when he spoke to us and realised that we weren't particularly interested in standard rock music, and he realised that we wanted to continue with our sort of innovative forays into the, the depths of, of traditional 12-bar or whatever, um, he, he saw what we were up to and said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be involved in that. And that, and I think also that the kind of soul roots, if you like, of the band, which is not a, a 60s soul, it's a, an 80s kind of soul, I think that appealed to him as well. So, just to harp on about the tour for a second, Edge, I mean, you have been on the road since the end of August, haven't you? How long are you going to be touring to promote this latest record, The Unforgettable Fire? You go to America from Britain. Well, we do a very short tour of the States, only about two weeks of dates before Christmas. But that really isn't an American tour, that's just a, a taster. We go back in the spring and we probably will be there for about two or three months, which is how long it takes to get to all the major centres in um, North America. From there, I think we'll probably come home, maybe do one or two festivals and then just leave it at that. I think everyone in the group is is anxious to to get back into the studio with some someone maybe Brian again maybe Danny Lanois and produce another LP. I was going to ask you about that if you if you were going to use Eno again or you were going to move on and experiment because I think um, I think people generally have looked upon the album quite favourably. People that weren't necessarily into you your previous efforts and everyone's respected the fact that you could have made another guitar album but you've attempted something different and it is I find it a very very different U2 record well I think it's it's definitely early days to actually decide where the particular path we've taken is going to lead us to uh, but certainly at this stage the band has taken a branch off 
maybe a bit left of or, or, or right of the field, whichever way you choose to look at it. And I think we'll continue with that. Whether or not we could do another record with, with Brian and Danny, it's too early to say. It depends on what songs we write. Was it an easy record to make, Edge? Did you uh, did you have a lot of trouble s sitting down actually writing for The Unforgettable Fire? Because it was another phase and a totally different band, wasn't it? Well, we started out with some songs which we finished to the best of our own abilities. Um, then Brian and Danny arrived. I suppose we had 15 pieces before they arrived. None of them really finished, but they were certainly well on the way. Instead of finishing those 15, we wrote another 15. So immediately, instead of having the usual kind of LPs worth of material plus two or three, which, you know, we weren't sure about, we had double the amount of stuff we needed. Mainly these were just um, ideas that hadn't really been developed. So uh, the record immediately changed in identity from what we had, had envisaged at first. And because of that, I think we weren't really quite sure quite where it was going to end up. That was a really positive thing, I think, in many ways. But because of that, I think it took us a lot longer to finish the songs, to get the finished melodies and lyrics and finished performances of the voice and uh, final takes done. So in that respect, the fact that it did take us three months to finish meant that it has been uh, and was a very difficult record to finally, you know, knock on the head. But it was an intensely uh, gratifying session, you know. It was very inspiring, very challenging. And um, it seemed like, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, when you look back on it, it really doesn't seem like it was three months at all. I personally feel that with The Unforgettable Fire that um, you've got an extra instrument in there with Bono's voice because I don't think ever has his voice sounded so powerful as, as on this latest record. Well, when we met with Brian originally, that was really one of the the cornerstones to, to the production that we wanted to, to hone in on, which was to make Bono's voice kind of live and soar a bit in a way that it hadn't done before. And we, we achieved this, in fact, funnily enough, by going back to an old valve microphone, which was similar to the type of microphone that, say, somebody like Presley would have recorded with. And at the end of the day, it really did come down to finding the right microphone for his voice. And then it just happened, you know, you didn't have to work on it at all. So uh, it just proves that transistors aren't, aren't so, so good these days. <laughs> the first track we're going to hear, Pride, um, I think it'd be fair to say that it is an obvious single, isn't it, to be taken from the album. But you've never been a band edge concerned with writing hit singles, have you? I mean, if there's a track on the album or whatever that happens to be commercial, I think New Year's Day was probably commercial and the right record at the right time to give you top ten status, and like with having a top three single with Pride. It's it's a crossover record, but you've never really worried, have you? No, our, our emphasis has always been on the LPs, on creating an album of material that has some sort of ebb and flow and, and works as a collection of pieces. With this song, Pride, I think the essence of the, of the song is very simple, and that's probably why it makes sense as a 45. Um, the original structure was a lot more complex, and it was Ian's or Eno's influence, I think, that led us to cut it down, to strip it down to the, the bare essentials of, of the piece. 
and in so doing I think we produced probably one of our only true single releases so I mean it, it wasn't envisaged originally as a 45 but it just became obvious you know when we mixed it that it was actually a, a song that could go very very far in the charts you are listening to part four of our U2 quadrology that's the word I made up uh, this is with Adam and the Edge and an interview from uh, late 1984 shortly before the release of the Unforgettable Fire and um, interesting stuff indeed and the other programs are available on this very same podcast we're a member of the Pantheon group of podcasts We'll take a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back with part two of the interview with Adam and the... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons... Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Edge. I'm delighted to have Adam Clayton and the Edge here from the band talking to us. Uh, the album title, Adam, The Unforgettable Fire, any particular reason? Well, it's, uh, as usual, it's not a simple answer. It's a sort of blanket expression. Firstly, The Unforgettable Fire is an exhibition of, well, Japanese national treasures, which were sort of sketches that people made from their memories who were involved in the the two bombs that went off in in Japan and it was basically because there were no cameras or anything it was the the victims 
put down their thoughts and feelings and I mean very moving but I think important that people should know about it because if there's any way that you can prevent the same thing happening again it's by not forgetting that that bomb did go off and it did destroy the Japanese race fortunately they've recovered at this point also it, it refers to the unforgettable fire of a man like Martin Luther King and Presley these sort of big figures of almost American folklore at this point and I think there's a more sinister connotation with the fire of say alcohol and heroin as well so I think it covers all those sort of three areas and and there are there are clues all the way through the the album as to which category each song sort of falls into the next track edge is the title track from the album the unforgettable fire mm, yeah it's actually my favorite track on the record at the moment um, I tend to change my opinion from but just at the moment that's that is it it's a song that started its its life quite a while ago as just a little piano piece and uh, developed from there to the track that's that's on the, on the record we demoed it before Brian and Danny arrived and the nice thing about that song is that the the essential musical qualities that it had as a piano piece and as a demo are still there as a final <coughs> track on the record but it's just it's just stated in a far stronger more confident way it's it's one of the nicest pieces I think we've ever done as a band. I find with this Adam, with this album, Adam, the um, the, the longevity of it. I do feel like I'll be playing it in twelve months' time. I think you seem to have crossed all barriers in as much as this record works on the radio. It works to play at home to entertain yourselves when you get in. And I could not believe that you did seven tracks off this album when you played Manchester. I mean, that is must have taken a bit of rehearsing. In fact, funnily enough, it was the opposite. Uh, we had very little time to rehearse because we went straight from the album into the Australian tour. However, when we got to Australia, we, we got three numbers into the set and then decided, come on, we've got to do this properly. So we called a halt to the German part of the European tour and really took a week just to work on the new material. And most of that was actually working out the technical problems with using sort of synthesizers and, and sequences on stage. There was a lot of teething problems with that. But yeah, I think I think that's an integral part of the record, the fact that we have been able to play so much of it live and that it does seem to cross these, these barriers. And in a way, I, I, I don't even know how it does that at this point. Uh, because to all intents and purposes, I think we've, we've done more or less what we've always done. Um, I think perhaps just timing-wise, people are coming round to listening to albums in a way that they, they haven't done for the last four or five years. The, um, the critics' reviews of the album were, were quite favourable, considering you must think it, it is backlash time. And then it's quite astonishing to see this week the savage attack you've received from the music papers. I mean... NME quote you as the worst band in the world. Well, I and several hundred thousand other people in this country would beg to differ. Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I, I think it would be very interesting to see what would happen to NME if, if, if it was reviewed every week in another paper or on a radio show in the way that they treat 
bans in their pages. Um, I think that's the problem with something like the enemy, is that there is there is no watchdog keeping an eye on it and making it toe the line. It's you know it's all fairly trivial. I think people have largely given up reading those sort of papers anyway because they're fed up with the the sort of cancer that they spread. Interesting to note that uh, this same paper, Edge, heralded Boy as the uh, finest debut album for ten years. Yeah, it's really funny how how uh, times change, you know, and policies change in the sub-editorial side of, of these sort of magazines. But I, I honestly believe that they're really cutting their own throats because they're getting so cynical and so negative that it, it's honestly, it's penance reading them now. I, I never read those things anymore. Very few um, musicians that I know of read them, or if they do, it's just... In secret. They just maybe pick one up every couple of months if there's something particularly that interests them. But really, who wants to pick up um, papers like that and read this sort of trash that they're putting out? It's, it, it's just so depressing. That's the only word for it. You, you read it and you feel, my God, you know, what's this business all about? Let's just pack it in and open greengrocers shops or something. It's just, you know, what more can you say? They will, in fact, uh, sell a few more copies by generating the reaction because there's going to be a lot of people that are going to write in and call people like... Well, I won't even mention his name because why, why should we give him the fame? But by lashing into you the way, and the way that they have done, they'll, they'll create a name for themselves, much the same as an assassin would. Well, life is very long. We can sit this one out. Uh, since the early days in Dublin, we've had attacks of all types at various stages and uh, we've survived them all so I think we'll we'll sit this one out right we'll move on to to play bad from the album uh, bad's an interesting title edge did uh <laughs> did you have much trouble thinking up a title like that it seemed actually quite a, an obvious one in fact it was so obvious that we we questioned it originally um, one of the early inspirations for that song was a certain um, repetitive quality that the Velvet Underground would have used in their early days and the song lyrically was I think seemed to be dedicated to um, a friend of Bono's who was going through a very bad time with heroin so the whole thing I mean it was it really did that title suggested itself quite early on in, in the making of the song so um, it was one of those working titles that we weren't sure about, and then when it came to the end of the record, we had to make a decision. And I think everyone was convinced that that was the title, really, and that nothing else could sum everything up quite so well. Great. So that's... Uh, <clears throat> I'm talking to Adam Clayton and The Edge from U2, and you just heard a track from the album that you'll all know bad. Are there any plans to take another single off the record, or would you take some time off and perhaps write another single? Well, that's a decision we're going to have to make in the next week or so. Um, we have a provisional plan to re-record a track from The Unforgettable Fire and rearrange it and present it in a different way, and that would be the only way we would put out another single. We, we wouldn't want to take another track off the album and sort of put it out. We'd like to, if we put something else out, we'd like it to be a bit different and a bit special. How do you, I mean, 
it's not fair to it to still refer to you as a guitar band now, is it, Edge? I mean, you are progressing, and I think you will attract a lot more fans through this album. And uh, well, I say critics as opposed to reviewers, but generally it's been looked on quite favourably. Are you pleased? Yeah, very pleased. When we first uh, decided to to ask Brian to produce, um, assuming that he was going to do it, we felt that it would be possibly a commercial failure of a record. I mean, Brian said himself, he said, look, if you want me to produce something commercial, I've never produced a commercial album in my life. And if you look back at his history, he's produced some very influential work, but nothing that has meant a, a commercially um, a commercial turning point in a band's career, quite the opposite. But we, we decided that, that at, at this stage in our career, that really wasn't what we were worried about. Um, and the LP that we finally ended up with has just been way above my expectations in that respect. It's it's a record that displays the many abilities within the group to, to their best advantage. It's, it's more of a representation of the band than any of the other records. It shows more of the contrast of the group with songs like Pride, the, 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 um, the way that that is so concise so simple and yet, yet so strong, down to things like Fourth of July, which is, well, the story of that track is myself and Adam were just playing together a few little figures in the castle where we were doing our basic recording. And we weren't even aware that it was being listened to. But Brian was in the other room, the control room, and he just was listening to what we were doing, had a few treatments up, which he quite liked. And so he put the quarter-inch machine on. That's just the stereo machine. So it was, it was like a live recording. So it went down, and then we decided to put it on the record. So, you know, it's total contrasts in this record. It's definitely my favourite of our, so far. I'd be inclined to agree with that. Um, with this album, Adam, and the fact that you have experimented, it, and it has, to some extent, worked. I mean, you haven't, you haven't been uh, critically savage from the album reviews. You, it, it must give you the confidence to, to move on yet again. Well, I think, yeah, I think we now are in a position to take on the studio in a, in a different way. I think the, f the first three albums, in many ways, were made on the run in that we we were very much surviving on being a touring band because we hadn't got the, the hit singles. And with this record, we've found that, that we don't really have to look at material in terms of, of playing it live, we look at it in terms of, of pieces of music. So I think I think there is room to do a lot more next time we go into the studio, now that we have that freedom on our side. Well, I'm delighted that you've found the time to talk to me today, fellas. I really do appreciate it, and I'm, uh, I'm quite honoured. Can Britain expect to see you two in 1985, Edge? Um, it's difficult to say. We, we might be back for... A, a small one-off show or something. Other than that, I think probably you'll, you'll be hearing about us back in the studio in 1985 and hopefully an album by early 1986. Well, if you do come back, you'll be more than welcome on this programme. Adam Clayton, thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Oh, bad me. I forgot to thank The Edge, so I'll thank him now. So, that concludes the uh, U2 four-part series. And go back, without me repeating myself, and look at all the other U2 stuff we've got, which is basically runs from 1980 to 1985, which was formulating an incredible uh, career ahead. Nobody quite knew what size 
the career was going to be. They became absolutely humongous. And the Joshua Tree and the Unforgettable Fire and, of course, Under a Blood Red Sky and the movie that Malcolm Gary made were instrumental in all those. And let's not forget Live Aid. We might have a little bit of story about um, Live Aid as well. Hope you enjoy them. Um, this has been Moments That Rock. I'm your host, Tony Mike This There's plenty more to go back and listen to. Please subscribe, come back, support us, listen to more so I can do some more. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.